lower and closer all the time. A big plane, I'm sure. Many motors. Damn, I said feelingly. I reached out for the silk gloves that always hung at night above my head, pulled them on, unzipped my sleeping bag, swore under my breath as the freezing air struck at my shivering skin, and grabbed for my clothes. Half an hour only since I had put them off, but already they were stiff, awkward to handle and abominably cold. It was a rare day indeed when the temperature inside the cabin rose above freezing point. But I had them on, long underwear, woollen shirt, breeches, silk-lined woollen parker, two pairs of socks and my felt cabin shoes, in thirty seconds flat. In latitude 72.40 north, 8,000 feet up on the Greenland ice cap, self-preservation makes for a remarkable turn of speed. I crossed the cabin to where no more than a nose showed through a tiny gap in a sleeping bag. Wake up, Joss! I shook him until he reached out a hand and pushed the hood off his dark, tousled head. Wake up, boy! It looks as if we might need you. What? What's the trouble? He rubbed the sleep from his eyes and stared up at the chronometer above his head. Midnight? I've been asleep only half an hour. I know, sorry, but get a move on. I recrossed the cabin, passed by the big RCA transmitter and stove, and halted in front of the instrument table. The register showed the wind east-northeast, velocity 15 knots, near enough 17 miles per hour on a night like this, with the ice crystals and drift lifting off the ice cap, clogging and slowing up the anemometer cups. The true speed was probably half as much again and the pen of the alcohol thermograph was running evenly along the red circle of 40 degrees below zero. 72 degrees of frost. I thought of the evil combination of these two factors of wind and cold, and felt my skin crawl. Already Jack Straw was silently climbing into his furs. I did the same. Caribou trousers and parker with reindeer fur-trimmed hood, all beautifully tailored by Jack Straw's wife. Sealskin boots, woolen mittens, and reindeer gloves. I could hear the plane quite clearly now, and so too I could see did Joss. The deep, even throb of its motors was plain even above the frantic rattling of the anemometer cups. It's... it's an aeroplane. You could see that he was still trying to convince himself. What did you think it was? One of your precious London double-deckers? I slipped snow mask and goggles round my neck and picked up a torch from the shelf beside the stove. It was kept there to keep the dry batteries from freezing. Been circling for the past two or three minutes. Jack Straw thinks it's in trouble, and I agree. Joss listened. Engines sound okay to me. And to me, but engine failure is only one of a dozen possible reasons. But why circle here? Well, how the devil should I know? Probably because he can see our lights. The only lights at a guess in 50,000 square miles. And if he has to put down, which God forbid, he stands his only chance of survival if he puts down near some human habitation. 
Heaven help them, Joss said soberly. He added something else, but I didn't wait to hear. I wanted to get up top as quickly as possible. To leave our cabin, we had to use a trapdoor, not an ordinary door. Our cabin, a prefabricated section structure that had been hauled up from the coast on tractor sleds during the month of July, was deep sunk in a great oblong hole that had been gouged out from the surface of the ice cap, so that only the top few inches of its flat roof projected above ground level. The trapdoor, hinged at both ends, so that it could open either upwards or downwards, was reached by a short, steep flight of steps. I climbed the first two of these, took down the wooden mallet that hung there permanently by the wall, and pounded round the already bruised and splintered edges of the trap to loosen the ice that held it locked fast. 